you have your Bible here tonight, you can find your place in the New Testament. It's going to be in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. I want to preach a message tonight to you entitled, What Christmas Meant to Jesus. I heard about a Baptist preacher who showed up at church the day after Christmas, and he was startled by what he thought was an apparent act of theft. He noticed that the baby Jesus was missing from the church's nativity scene, which sat out on the front lawn. He thought to himself, he shook his head, he said, you know, what is this world coming to that someone would steal a baby Jesus? So he picked up the phone and he started calling around to various church members to see if they knew anything about where baby Jesus had went. He called the chairman of the deacons, he called the church custodian. Nobody knew what happened to baby Jesus, and they too were equally as shocked about the theft. Well, just as the pastor was about to dial 911 and call the police and report a theft, he saw a little boy ride up on a bicycle. The boy got closer, he recognized him as a kid from the church. He was riding a brand new bike. I mean, it was candy apple red, had the little basket on the front, ring, ring, had the little bell on the handlebars, and he was wearing a backpack. The kid said, hey, preacher, check out this new bike that I got for Christmas. The preacher nodded his head, yeah, yeah, son, that's, that's great, I've, I've got a little problem on my hand. And then he noticed that the boy took off his backpack, he began to fumble through it, and then he said, here you go, preacher, handed him a little bundle. He said, you, you may have been looking for this. Preacher unwrapped the blanket, and there it was. Son, what are you doing with, with this? I've been searching all morning for, for baby Jesus. What in the world do you, do you think you're doing with this? The boy began to explain. He said, preacher, he said, you'll be glad to know. He said, about a week before Christmas, I prayed to Jesus, and I told him if he would give me a red bicycle for Christmas, I promised him I'd give him the first ride in it. <laughs> now, that story's cute, but it reminds us of a couple of pitfalls this time of year. First, if we're not careful, the world can very easily rob Christ out of Christmas from under our nose, can it? We sing the classic carol, Away in the Manger, but there are many in this world who've tried really hard to do away with the manger. Praise God, they have not succeeded. Second, there are many who are content to give Jesus one day out of the year, and then when that day's over, put Him back in the manger, pack Him up, set Him in the attic, and go about the rest of the year like nothing has changed. How many of you know that Christmas is only the first part of a greater and grander story of redemption that God was telling? And tucked away here in the little book of Philippians is a six-verse summary of the message of Christmas and beyond. During Christmas, we see a lot of plays and pageants. We hear songs and sermons that try and present the truth of Christmas to us from every conceivable angle. I mean, we get the perspective of the wise men. Uh, we get the Christmas message from Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels. And 
Even the little drummer boy. We, <laughs> we get everybody's idea on what Christmas meant to them. But seldom do we ask, what did Christmas mean to Jesus? And so, what makes this passage in Philippians 2 unique is that it explains the Christmas message from the experience of Christ. And in this message, we're going to get a first-person perspective this evening of what Jesus humbly gave up when He came to us some 2,000 years ago. Number one, I want you to notice tonight the submissive incarnation of God's Son. The submissive incarnation of God's Son. Let's just read together, starting Philippians 2 and verse 5. It's on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I'm talking about, number one, the submissive incarnation of God's Son. Oh, the incarnation. Volumes have been written about this glorious truth. Some have described it as a riddle wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. In the miracle of the moment, eternity invaded time. Deity intersected with humanity. Royalty came into the realm of poverty. And that's Paul's theme here in these verses. In fact, some scholars believe that the verses we just read are originally an ancient hymn that was sung by the early church. And they sang this song glorifying Christ and His coming in the flesh. You might say this is the first Christmas carol in a way. And it has three movements. Notice that first we see Christ in the cradle. That's what we just read in verses 5 through 7. Then we're going to see the second movement, Christ at the cross. And then later on at the end, we'll see Christ wearing the crown. Notice the diagram that is coming up on the screen. You're going to see how this hymn takes us from glory to glory. It begins in the heavens with the pre-incarnate Christ. And then we follow Jesus as He comes down to earth and to become a bondservant and then even to the lowest point of the cross and then He is raised from the dead and He ascends and now He's exalted and from one glory to another glory we see the journey that Christ took in bringing salvation to us. Now this first part of the message that we just read is kind of like a descending staircase, if you will. Each step downward is another level of self-humiliation that Jesus took in His incarnation. I want you to notice three steps that Jesus took on the way down. First, He realized the plan. He realized the plan. Look at what verse 6 says. Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This first phrase takes us behind the curtain of eternity and into the sacred community of the triune God. Long before the first stars twinkled or the earth spun on its axis, Christ eternally existed in unbroken fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And Paul is taking us even back beyond time and space and matter, even before Genesis 1.1. And he's telling us that Jesus willingly 
agreed to the Father's plan of salvation for mankind, knowing what it would entail, a rescue mission in which He would come for sinners like you and me. We could look at Revelation 13 and verse 8, alluding to this plan where it calls Christ the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. We could turn to John 17 and verse 5, where in Jesus' high priestly prayer, He says, Glorify me in thy presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was formed. From glory to glory. On July the 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. Some of you remember that. You watched it on a grainy television screen. Richard Nixon was the president when that momentous occasion happened. And soon after, millions of Americans watched that moonwalk on their screens. Nixon made a statement to the American public. Here's what President Nixon said. He said, quote, this is the greatest week since the beginning of the world, since creation. Nothing, he said, has changed the world more than this Apollo 11 mission. The very next day, the faithful evangelist Billy Graham was preaching in a crusade and he took that moment to correct President Nixon and he said, no, the greatest moment in history was not when man walked on the moon, but it was when God walked on the earth. Think... Friend, for a moment of the glorious mystery that this incarnation would create. Jesus would be the earthly son of a heavenly father and the heavenly son of an earthly mother. In Eden, you'll remember that God made the first man without the help of a mother. And at Bethlehem, God became a man without the help of a father. Jesus was the only child who was the same age as his heavenly father and yet older than his mother. That is why in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, Paul says, Great is the mystery of godliness that Christ was manifested in the flesh. Oh, it's a truth so wonderful and glorious that words become beggarly as we try to describe the incarnation of the Son of God. He realized the plan. Then also notice this in verse 7. He restricted His power. This is what Christmas meant to Jesus. He agreed to the salvation plan. He stepped out of heaven. But then He restricted His power. Verse 7. But emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, notice that little phrase, emptied Himself. It doesn't mean that Jesus lost any of His deity but rather that he voluntarily gave up the right to fully exercise all of his divine power. He laid that aside to come to us. So, notice, in the incarnation, there was no subtraction. Jesus didn't lose his divinity. There was no division. Jesus wasn't split in half between 50% man and 50% God. But there was addition. God who eternally existed took on human flesh. Not the subtraction of deity, but the addition of humanity. He restricted His power. In other words, what Paul is getting at here is that by choosing to take on flesh, Christ willingly made Himself weak and vulnerable and humble. He would know our sickness. He would know our pain. He would know our tears. 
he would know loneliness. He traded the silks of royal robes for the rags of a peasant. He gave up commanding angels to suckle as a child. He laid aside his glory and honor to float in amniotic fluid and be born in a barn among livestock. I'm friend, I'm telling you, it's not the plan that you and I would have agreed to if we were setting the stage and we were writing the story. We would not have chosen an entrance into the world like this. But oh, praise God that His ways are higher and His ways are wiser. He restricted His power. He who spoke galaxies into existence limited His voice to the cries of an infant. My, my. We can get a glimpse of this kind of condescension when you think about you've got kids if you've ever played with your kids when they're small. As a young dad, I began to notice that I was spending a lot of time in the floor. You know, if you want to play with your kids early on, you've got to get down on their level. You want to build Legos with Daniel, you've got to get down in the floor where the blocks are. You want to help Abigail with her puzzles. Well, you're going to be down in the floor for a while. And while I'm down there, I'm saying, what else can I pray for while I'm down here, Lord? But my kids, they have this thing called a slam fight. It's basically where I get down on all fours in the living room and I allow the kids to crawl all over me and we wrestle and roll around and they pummel me and I act like I'm in pain and agony and they pin me and they jump on me. Uh, Sister uh, Abigail, she calls it a slam fight. She says, Daddy, can we have a slam fight before we go to bed tonight? And the missus loves that because I get to get them all riled up and all energetic Bouncing off the walls right before it's time to go to bed. Every mom's dream, right? But as we're doing our slam fight, you know, I have to restrict my power. I could easily, with one arm tied behind my back, just whip them all. Right? But I restrict my power. I lay aside the full use of my ability to accommodate them and get down on their level so that I can have a relationship with my kids. You see, here's an illustration of what Christ did for us. He laid aside the one who spoke galaxies into existence and the one who could walk on water, the one who held all power and commanded angelic hosts. I'm about to preach tonight. He laid it all aside so that He could come down to a dark and lowly world to get on our level with our scraped knees and our sins and our addictions and our brokenness and our depression and our problem. And He came down and all the way down, Brother Cliff, to where we live. Philip Yancey wrote these words. He said, quote, the God of might and miracle who split seas and rained down fire from the sky and caused city walls to crumble set all that power aside for a time. The God who roared, who could order armies like pawns on a chessboard proved another kind of strength in humility. Christ who emerged in Palestine as a baby could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder He who made all things made himself dependent on a teenager for shelter and food and love. My God, what a Savior. Mild he lays his glory by, born that 
men no more will die, born to raise them up from earth, born to give them second birth. You see, not only did he realize the plan and restrict his power, but as we talk about the coming of the Christ child, notice that he renounced his privileges. Verse 7 continues on with this statement, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus completely waived any rights to be worshipped and served as God and chose the life of servitude. To touch lepers. To spend time with sinners and prostitutes. To reach out to the blind. To wash grimy, nasty feet. You see, friend, in the ancient world, a bondservant owed nothing. They did not even own the clothes on their back. And this is how Christ, we are told, came into our world. In fact, you can trace this pattern all through Jesus' life. Everything he had was borrowed. You ever thought about that? Well, for instance, the manger that Jesus would lay in on that first holy night, it was borrowed. It was going to go back to the livestock the very next day. He never owned a home. He said in Luke 9, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had to borrow a boat to stand out on the sea to preach and, and, and get to the other side. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into the city of Jerusalem. He was even laid in a tomb that was not his own and hung on a cross that was appointed for another man. He was a servant in every way. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, Paul says, Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Oh friend, he renounced all of those privileges to be sung to by the angels for all of eternity, to be the darling precious son of his father, to bask in the realm of glory and blessing and privilege and honor. He laid it all aside for a nasty, dirty sinner like me. Oh God, I'll never understand it. But as I stand in the shadow of it, I receive it. And I need it. Y'all know I'm a history nerd. And in one of his books, historian Eric Metaxas was writing about one of the defining moments of American history. It happened in 1787 at the end of George Washington's second term as president. Now keep in mind that at this time, there was no constitutional limitations for how long a president could serve. And so if Washington chose, he could have served the rest of his life as president. But he was also setting the tone for future leaders. One December morning, Washington went into Congress. A gray-haired, battled, wearied Washington stood before his countrymen and did something unthinkable. He renounced all of his privileges for another term as president. Rather than hold on to the reins of power, he let them go. Here's what Eric Metaxas wrote. He said, in rejecting power, General Washington became the most famous military leader in the history of the world to win a war and voluntarily step down instead of seizing power. In fact, he said, Washington's sworn enemy, George III, 
of England could scarcely believe his ears when he heard the news that the leader of the army who had defeated the most powerful military force in the world is stepping down. Then George III declared, that man must be the greatest man who ever lived. What Washington did is not but a drop in the bucket compared to the greatest act of humility, the greatest act of condescension that has ever been when Jesus stepped out of the realm of glory and renounced His privileges and said, No, I go to serve. How could we ever put ourselves first when we read of the self-humiliation of the Son of God? Never had one who had been so high ever stooped so low. Oh friend, I'm convinced we've got it backwards in the world and even in the church, in the kingdom of God. The way up is down. You want to be like Jesus? You've got to go down in order to go up. Oh my God, open our eyes to this truth that a thousand times in history a baby grew up to be a king But only once in history did a king become a baby to save the whole world. I'm telling you about the submissive incarnation of God's Son. Oh, but the hymn doesn't stop there. And neither does the Christmas story. We've got to keep going. It doesn't just stop with a baby in a manger. We don't just pack him up and put him in a box in the attic and forget about him. He's more than just a historical figure. He's more than just a man. He's more than just a prophet. You see, for the second part of this song reminds us why he came. Number two, we see the sacrificial humiliation of God's Son. So from incarnation to humiliation, from cradle to cross look at what verse 8 tells us and being found in the human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a what church cross Jesus imagine this descended the ladder of the incarnation one rung at a time down 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 from heaven's crown to Bethlehem's cradle, to Calvary's cross. And don't miss Paul's little phrase here at the end, comma, even death on a cross. A first century reader would have totally understood how devastating that would be, how humiliating that would be. The obedience of Jesus, the yes of Jesus, resulted in the most humiliating death known to man at that time. Crucifixion. The pain was excruciating. The shame was scandalous. The blood and gore was barbaric. He became a curse. He became a spectacle. He became a criminal. Oh my. For Jesus, Christmas meant an inevitable march toward the cross. It meant a slow moving moving towards death he was born to die and think about it friend with all the power that he had with all the privilege and prerogative that belonged to him at the first hint of discomfort he could have turned his back and said I'm done with them father I can't put up with their ingratitude and their evil and their waywardness and he would have been totally within his rights to do that God doesn't owe us anything friend The moment he saw the smallness of the womb, he could have quit. 
The moment he saw the dirt floor in his poor little Nazareth home, he could have said, nope, not for me. He could have walked away when Peter denied him. Or at the first sting of the whip upon his back, or as the cross beam got heavier and heavier up that track to Golgotha's hill, he could have said, no, I'm done. The angels could have come down and received him and took him back to glory. But Jesus never pulled rank, did he? He never demanded his rights. He never cut in line. He, he never asked to be first. Oh, what a great Savior we have. Why, did, why, why didn't he stop it? You and I would have thrown in the towel if it was our son, if it was our child, and we saw the suffering, and we saw the rejection, and we saw the way that mankind treated the Savior. I know what it would feel like if it was one of my kids. Would have rushed in there and rescued him and threw a couple of elbows and gave some black eyes. Why did he do it? L-O-V-E. Two verses. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. You can insert your name there. For God so loved Clifford. For God so loved Adam. For God so loved... Put your name there. And then Mark 10 and verse 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Notice this. As man Christ died like us, as God Christ died for us, as man He died as our substitute, as God He died as our Savior as man, He was held to the cross by nails, but by, as God, He was held to the cross by love. And Jesus' love was so genuine, so pure, so infinite. He died knowing that people would reject His love and love them anyway. Friend, how many times have you spurned the love of God in your life? He's called you. He's wooed you. He's tried to receive you. But you've hardened your heart and you've turned yourself away. Friend, who can say no to nail scars? Who can say no to a servant like this? In 1926, George Harley founded a medical mission among the Mano tribe of Liberia. Here's his picture. Dr. Harley served over 10,000 patients a year. He healed their sick. He mended their broken bones. But for his first five years, he never saw one conversion. I don't know about you, but I probably would have packed it up and went home. Then one day, tragedy struck. You see, Dr. Harley and his wife were there, and they had a son. The doctor's only son became deathly ill with jungle fever. And in just a matter of days, the boy died. Dr. Harley and his wife were distraught with grief, understandably, he was actually mad at God, he said in his journal. God, I, I gave up everything to come halfway across the world to serve people I don't even know, and this is what you do for me. You allow my son to die. We understand that. In our humanness, we would have that same battle. So, Dr. Harley did what only he could do. He built a small coffin, he put his son inside, 
lifted it above his shoulder, and he walked across the field to dig a grave. Well, as he was walking, one of the old men of the village, one of the natives saw him carrying that little box on his shoulder, and he came and he asked the doctor, what's the deal with the box? He explained that his son had got sick, his son had died, and in his culture and his custom, he was going to bury his son. Here's what he wrote. So the old man and I took the coffin together and we dug a grave and laid my Bobby in it. Just when I had covered it up, I was overcome with grief. I fell down to my knees in the dirt and began sobbing uncontrollably. Here I was, 8,000 miles from home, trying to reach a stiff-necked people with the message of God's Son, and it cost me the death of my son. I felt so alone, so helpless, and I heard God's Spirit witness to me, George, I know your pain too. Remember, I lost a son on the mission field. That's when the old man squatted down beside me. And for a long time he sat there in silence and listened to me cry. Then he suddenly left up and started running back to the village. And as he was running, he screamed at the top of his lungs, The white man has tears like us. The white man has tears like us. Dr. Harley said the next morning, there was a knock at the door. They opened the door. The entire village was standing there on their front stoop. The village chief stepped forward and he said, We heard about the death of your son. We now understand that you are like us. That you have tears and pain. And the message that you have brought to us must be very important for it to cost the death of your son. Dr. Harley said that from that point on, he preached the gospel and a revival broke out in the village and it spread from one little village to another. And in that African nation, the gospel flag was planted deep in a heart of darkness. And friend, that's the message of of Christmas and the cross that God has come down and He's come all the way down and He has a face and He has blood and, and sinews and bones and God has tears too. And that's how much He loved you and me. I know what some people are thinking right now. Preacher, you have ruined my Christmas. I wanted Christmas to be happy and joyful and bloodless. And here you are going on and on about the cross. Let me tell you something. You have to have the cross. A Christmas without a cross would make redemption story irrelevant. If he's just born and there's these signs and wonders and the shepherds come and the wise men, it's a great story, but we're still lost in our sin unless he goes to that cross for you and for me. You see, a cross without a Christmas makes redemption story incomplete. And a Christmas without a cross makes redemption story irrelevant. Well, the passage sums up, and I'm about done. Number one, we see the submissive incarnation of God's Son. There He is in the cradle. Then the second movement, the sacrificial humiliation of God's Son. There He is on the cross. Then the third stanza. Probably my favorite. The supreme exaltation of God's Son. Incarnation, humiliation, exaltation from cradle to cross to crown. Notice what verse 9 says, friend. Therefore, 
And every time you see a therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what's it there for? And Paul's reiterating everything up to that point. Because he humbled himself, because he took on the form of a servant, because he died a humiliating death, therefore, here's the payoff. Here's the reward. God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. Oh, friend, I, can't, I just can't be still and read it. It's so glorious. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Yes, I mean, see those hands raised. Glory to God. That every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm telling you, if you're a child of God and you can read that and sit still, I don't know how you can. It just gets me all fired up. But notice in this last stanza, Paul looks ahead. Oh, he's looked back, back into eternity past and, and, and to the glory of Christ before he came. And then he looked at Bethlehem and then he looked at the cross. But now he's looking forward into the future. The terminus of time. Notice here that the dust of war has settled. Power plays and, and politicians have ceased. Jesus who descended to the lowest station has now been exalted to the highest heights. No president or the prince is more powerful than he. No angel has more authority. No general or warlord has a higher rank than he does. Jesus has gone from suffering servant to sovereign, glorified, and exalted among the nations. Jesus' condescension and His crucifixion and His resurrection from the death proved that he had defeated Satan in the grave. And now Paul says that qualifies him to be king of kings and to be just judge and the one to whom the nations shall bow one day and bring their worthy offering and their worship to him. Oh, if you could grab a hold of this, imagine a cosmic scale. On one side, you have every nation, every kingdom, every prince, every king, every man who's thought himself powerful, everything of great beauty and worth that we enjoy, every star, every galaxy, every waterfall, every mountain, every great and glorious blessing that God has ever given humanity on one side of the cosmic scale. And then on the other side, you put Jesus. You put God's Son. And suddenly that scale just tips to the other side because He's greater. He's more glorious. He's worthy of all blessings. He's God and Savior. He's King of Kings. He's worthy and more glorious than all of it combined. Oh, it's all dust on a, on a scale compared to the Lord of glory. Somebody help me in the house of God. This is why the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says that when Jesus thought about it and He looked forward to the cross, He did so with joy. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, friend, think about it. In His presence, names like Caesar and Alexander and Napoleon and Stalin will fade into nothing. The 
black, the brown, the pauper, the prince, the Jews, the Gentiles, the red carpet superstar, and the street corner panhandler, the angels and the demons, the atheists and the pagans will all bow down one day and say, just like Peter did, you are the son of the living God. I rejected you. I denied you. I spat upon you. But oh, it's true. It's true. And at that moment, every saint of God, everybody who's been blood-bought and redeemed is going to stand to their feet and say, Yes, out of the mouth of the skeptic and the sinner and the reviler, you preach the glory and the goodness and the justice and mercy of our God. There's an example I could point to right now. Did you know... There's an example of Christ's triumph even as we speak. And I'm not just talking about all the redeemed. During World War II, did you know that Adolf Hitler ordered the building of a 100,000 watt radio transmitter? There it is. It's in Monte Carlo, Monaco. He planned on using it to broadcast Nazi propaganda throughout the world. But friend, God had another plan. Hitler never broadcast one minute on this Radio tower and it sat dormant until 1959 when the tower was purchased by Trans World Radio and today it reaches 80 million listeners with Christian music and the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God used an, a, a godless atheist, a madman and a killer to build it for His glory so that He could be used. That's what I'm talking about. How God can straight even with a crooked stick and God can get good out of evil there are many today who mock the name of Jesus they laugh at the manger they reject the cross they dismiss the empty tomb but friend a day is coming mark it down take it to the bank underline it in your Bible pray upon it when all men's crowns and titles and trophies are going to dissolve like paper mache multitudes of people are going to bow before him like wheat when a prairie wind blows over it, they're going to bow before the Lord of glory. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You say, preacher, what do I do with that? How should I respond? Oh, friend, if you don't know Him tonight as your Lord and Savior, this is your night. You say, what should I do, preacher? Well, there's only one response you can have said that Great Britain's greatest naval hero was Lord Horatio Nelson. He was a great admiral from the 18th century. He was known for his genius in sea battle. He was also noted for his deference and respect to whom he showed the vanquished. On one occasion it is said that a defeated Spanish admiral was waiting for Lord Nelson to come. So that he might present the terms of surrender. And the Spanish admiral who had been defeated was waiting there proudly. And when Admiral Nelson walked on the ship, the Spanish admiral put forth his hand and Horatio Nelson stepped back and said, No, no, no. Your sword first. And he took off his sword, surrendered it to the victor. Now, here are the terms of surrender. And friend, presented with this evidence, what is your response? You lay down your sword. You quit running. 
You stop fighting them. You give in. You surrender. You bend the knee. You call Him who He really is. Emmanuel, He's Savior, He's the Lamb of God, He's the resurrection and the light, He's the light of the world, but He's also King of kings and Lord of lords, and He demands that you bow the knee and recognize Him for who He is. Oh, friend, because He's coming back. And when He comes back a second time, He's not coming the way that He came the first time. I just wrote down some of this Today, I was thinking about, look at this slide. Notice, the first time he came, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. But the next time he comes, he's wrapped in a robe did with blood. The first time he came, wise men bowed before him. But the second time he's coming, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The first time he came, a star appeared over Bethlehem. But the second time he comes, Matthew 24 says that the stars will fall from the sky. The first time He came, He split our timeline in two, B.C. and A.D. Yes, even when the atheist and the skeptic write the date, they're acknowledging the coming of Christ Jesus into our world. But the second time He comes, He's going to split the Mount of Olives in two, Zechariah 14 says. The first time He came, the shepherds saw His birth and rejoiced. But the second time He comes, the Bible says, every eye will see Him and those on the earth will mourn, even those who pierced Him. You see, this passage has it all. First coming, second coming, cradle, cross, crown. It's all here. He's not just the baby in the manger. He's the Lord of glory. He came to a cradle. He bore the cross. But today, friend, make no mistake, He wears the crown. And those who worship Him on earth will confess Him joyfully. But those who did not confess Him on earth, one day when they meet Him, they'll confess it but regretfully. Our response is this. You can either humble yourself before Him, or one day you can be humbled by Him. Alicia's coming and some of our musicians, and I don't want to let this moment pass because I I know that God is speaking to somebody tonight. Lisa's going to play a song of invitation for us. And as she plays, I wonder if God would speak to somebody tonight who might need to receive Christ, who might need to bend the knee, to make Him Christ and King and Lord and Savior in their life. So as we stand to our feet for a moment, Lisa's going to lead us in a wonderful song that says it all. Friend, the greatest thing that could happen at Christmas is for you to be born again. For you to know Him personally. For allow Him to transform your heart and life. He loves you. He died for you. He rose for you. If you need to come forward, I'm right here. I'd love to pray with you for whatever need is in your life. You just come and you be obedient. And you let God speak to you right now in this moment. Elise, thank you for singing. Follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all we've projected? A child in a manger. Lowly and small, the weakest of all. Unlikeliest hero. Wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child. 
This is who we've waited for. Cause how many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Bringing out gifts for the newborn Savior, all that we have, whether costly or meek, because we believe. Gold for his honor and frankincense for his pleasure and myrrh for the cross, he'll suffer, do you believe? Is this who we've waited for? How many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons? for me only one did that for me for me. 